Chapter Four of Wilder's Hand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Wilder's Hand by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Chapter Four, in which we go to the drawing room and the party breaks up. Wilder was surprised, puzzled, and a good deal incensed that saucy craft had fired her shot so unexpectedly across his bows. He looked a little flushed, and darted a stealthy glance across the table, but no one, he thought, had observed the manoeuvre. He would have talked to ugly Mrs. W. Wilder, his sister-in-law, at his left, but she was entertaining Lord Chelford now. He had nothing for it but to perform cavalier seul with his slice of mutton, a sensual sort of isolation while all the world was chatting so agreeably and noisily around him. He would have liked, at that moment, a walk upon the quarter-deck, with a good head-wind blowing, and liberty to curse and swear a bit over the bullock. Women are so full of caprice and hypocrisy, and humbugging impudence. Wilder was rather surly after the ladies had floated away from the scene, and he drank his liquor doggedly. It was his fancy, I suppose, to revive certain sentimental relations which had, it may be, once existed between him and Miss Lake, and he was a person of that combative temperament that magnifies an object in proportion as its pursuit is thwarted. In the drawing-room he watched Miss Lake over his cup of coffee, and after a few words to his fiancée he lounged towards the table at which she was turning over some prints. "'Do come here, Dorothy,' she exclaimed, not raising her eyes. "'I have found the very thing.' "'What thing? My dear Miss Lake,' said that good little woman, skipping to her side. "'The story of Fridolin and Wretch's pretty outlines. Sit down beside me, and I'll tell you the story.' "'Oh,' said the vicar's wife, taking her seat, and the inspection and exposition began. And Mark Wilder, who had intended renewing his talk with Miss Lake, saw that she had foiled him, and stood with a heightened colour, and his hands in his pockets, looking confoundedly cross, and very like an outcast, in the shadow behind. After a while, in a pet, he walked away. Lord Chelford had joined the two ladies, and had something to say about German art, and some pleasant lights to throw from foreign travel and devious reading, and was as usual intelligent and agreeable. And Mark was still more sore and angry, and strutted away to another table, a long way off, and tossed over the leaves of a folio of Wouverman's works, and did not see one of the plates he stared at so savagely. I don't think Mark was very clear as to what he wanted, or, even if he had had a cool half-hour to define his wishes, that he would seriously have modified existing arrangements. But he had a passionate sort of obstinacy, and his whims took a violent character when they were crossed, and he was angry and jealous and unintelligible reminding one of Carlyle's description of Philip Egalité, a chaos. Then he joined a conversation going on between Dorcas Brandon and the vicar, his brother. He assisted at it, but took no part, and in fact was listening to that other conversation which sounded, with its pleasant gabble and laughter, like a little musical tinkle of bells in the distance. His gall rose, and that distant talk rang in his ears like a cool but intangible insult. It was dull work. He looked at his watch. The brougham would be at the door to take Miss Lake home in a quarter of an hour. So he glided by old Lady Chelford, who was dozing stiffly through her spectacles on a French novel, and through a second drawing-room, and into the hall, where he saw Larcombe's expansive white waistcoat, and disregarded his advance and respectful inclination, and strode into the outer hall or vestibule, 
where were hat-stands, walking-sticks, great-coats, umbrellas, and the exuvier of gentlemen. Mark clapped on his hat, and rifled the pocket of his pale-toe, of his cigar-case and matches, and spluttered a curse or two, according to old Nollikin's receipt for easing the mind, and on the doorsteps lighted his cheroot, and became gradually more philosophical. In due time the brougham came round with its lamps lighted, and Mark, who was by this time placid, greeted Price on the box familiarly, after his wont, and asked him whom he was going to drive, as if he did not know, cunning fellow, and actually went so far as to give Price one of those cheap and nasty weeds, of which he kept a supply apart in his case for such occasions of good fellowship. So Mark waited to put the lady into the carriage, and he meditated, walking a little way by the window and making his peace. And there was perhaps some vague vision of jumping in afterwards. I know not. Mark's ideas of ladies and of propriety were low, and he was little better than a sailor ashore, and not a good specimen of that class of monster. He walked about the courtyard smoking, looking sometimes on the solemn front of the old palatial mansion, and sometimes breathing a white film up to the stars, impatient, like the enamoured Aladdin, watching an ambuscade for the emergence of the Princess Badrulbadur. But honest Mark forgot that young ladies do not always come out quite alone, and jump unassisted into their vehicles. And, in fact, not only did Lord Chelford assist the fair lady, cloaked and hooded, into the carriage, but the vicar's good-humoured little wife was handed in also, the good vicar looking on. And as the gay good-night and leave-taking took place by the doorsteps, Mark drew back, like a guilty thing, in silence and showed no sign but the red top of his cigar, glowing like the eye of a cyclops in the dark. And away rolled the brougham, with the two ladies, and Chelford and the vicar went in, and Mark hurled the stump of his cheroot at fortune, and delivered a fragmentary soliloquy through his teeth. And so, in a sulk, without making his adieus, he marched off to his crib at the Brandon Arms. End of chapter 4